0: You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht, Benjamin Peiske and Sam Gardner, designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today we are talking about challenges and opportunities of combining real-world evidence and randomized clinical trial data or other clinical trial data really hot topic, so stay tuned for this one. I've been working on real-world evidence data for quite a long time. Most of my career I worked on it. And of course I also worked on clinical trial data. And 20 years ago we would have never thought about merging them together. But there's a lot of opportunities if we actually do this. And today I'm really happy to talk with our guest about this. So stay tuned and learn more about it. Speaking of learning, there's a lot you can learn from PSI, which is the association I'm running this podcast with. It's a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. You can learn Wire the video on demand content library, about the free registration to all PSI webinars if you are a PSI member and many many more activities including the flagship conference in 2022 which will happen hopefully live in Gothenburg. Head over to PSI at PSIweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to a new episode of the Effective Statistician. Uh, Today, I'm really happy to speak with Thomas. Thomas, how are you doing?
1: Hi, I'm I'm doing well. Thank you.
0: Very good. Today, we are talking about real-world evidence, frameworks, HTA. How did you come into that area?
1: Uh, yeah, I think that's been a long road because I've I've been in academia for quite a couple of years now, uh, and initially I yeah I did of course a PhD like any other uh, academic, and and my PhD was about prognosis and, and meta-analysis, um, and so I, I worked on methodology for integrating some kind of concepts and methodologies that has commonly been used in intervention uh, research for summarizing evidence into a different area, but for me it kind of opened a new perspective, you know, because I, I started to understand, okay, what what are, what are the developments in this, in this space of evidence synthesis and how can it not only contribute to, you know, uh, learning about uh, treatment effect estimates, but also improving uh, risk predictions. And so this kind of experience opened up new pathways for me to, you know, to embark on new projects. And one of the projects I started working on sometime after my PhD was uh, I Might Get Real, where mm-hmm. basically the, the focus was on, on yeah combining evidence from uh, both randomized and non-randomized settings. And, and this is the, the kind of project where, you know, the, the, the luggage or the, the, the experience that I yeah gained and developed the years before became really handy to explore how these kind of standard methods can be further extended and, and be leveraged for, for more advanced kind of questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I would say, so I think that the, the key points uh, that I started working with this kind of methodology. I think it was really I might get real, where I, you know, where I really um, made a lot of efforts to, you know, to better understand about this these topics. So.
0: so, if you talk about combining clinical trials and real world evidence or observational data, what kind of observational data are you thinking about?
1: Yeah. So this can be. I mean, this is a very broad question, right? Because uh, typically observational studies in in, uh, in the field of epidemiology, I mean, we, we think indeed about observational studies, right? About about pre-designed... Prospective d- Prospective studies that, you know, are, are designed to answer intervention uh, questions. And, and so, of course, in the ideal case, this would kind of be the ideal observational study, right? Where you've designed your study in a way to collect all the information that you need to address your effectiveness or efficacy questions, where you collect all the informational confounders that you think are important where you collect information on the outcomes that you think are important, where you build in enough, I don't know, like moments to, you know, collect follow-up information and so forth. So this is a kind of the ideal case for doing a kind of observational study to, you know, to think about uh, intervention effects. Um, and so, so I mean, this is certainly one of the options and one of the possibilities that how you could use observational data in combination with uh, non-run, uh, with, sorry, with randomized data. Uh, but the reality is, of course, that there are many other types of observational data out there that are maybe less uh, ideal, less, less, you know, more, more complicated to use for the same kind of purposes. But nevertheless, they might still contain information that uh, can help you to better understand how certain interventions or drugs you know, work outside a clinical trial setting or also in the settings when you don't have uh, randomized evidence available so far. So how do I see observational data on randomised data? So I I see it as a much bigger type of bucket of evidence, right? So it can also be observational studies that have not been designed for answering uh, intervention uh, questions, but for maybe some other uh, type of purposes. So they could still have been prospective, but for a whole different, they could have been set up for a whole different purpose. But nevertheless, it might be, you know, information in those studies that, that could still allow you to investigate treatment effect estimates, to a certain degree. And then also nowadays, also you have increasingly often you have data available from, uh, for instance, uh, registries with routine care data. So it's, it's even more, of course, it's even more challenging to use this data to, to learn about treatment effects. But in some situations, it, it's certainly possible. But of course, it, it comes with certain caveats that, that, yeah, that you could avoid. Of course, if you design a prospective study.
0: Yeah. A prospective study, if you know what you actually need. Always has much better quality because it's fit for purpose. Whereas if you have something you know secondary, it always yeah, comes with problems. How about the one-armed cases? So if you would have um you know data set comes only from a one-arm study, you have a one-armed um, clinical trial, maybe, or one-armed observational study. Would that also be part of your considerations?
1: Yes, yes. So, of course, you can indeed, you can use like trial and detail where you only have like one arm and then you could indeed look for observational data to kind of supplement these data as a kind of control arm. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's in the same kind of space, at least from my, you know, my point of view. Yeah, of course, yeah, I I think it belongs in the same kind of area uh, of, of, yeah. It's not necessarily a synthesis, right, because you just have then two arms if you just have like uh, one um, comparator arm and one uh, control arm, uh, there is not really any synthesis going on but yeah conceptually it's the same kind of problems that you' you're struggling with. Uh, and, and maybe of course if you have access to multiple control arms or multiple observational data or maybe even multiple active comparator arms then maybe you have some you, you generate some possibilities also to investigate to what extent, these this these um groups that you're using to what extent they are i don't know generalizable to all our populations and all the settings so you you create some new opportunities to learn about to some extent the validity of, of the strategy that you're pursuing but also to learn about the generalizability of this these effects that you're estimating and to invest and it creates also opportunities to investigate you know uh if if there are discrepancies what could be possible reasons for this. So
0: when you talk about validity, what do, what do you understand by
1: that? Uh, yeah, that's also, yeah, that's a challenging question, right? Because validity. Yeah. so I mean, validity. I think in technical terms, it relates to bias, right? So is the estimate that you're that you're trying to quantify, or sorry, is the estimate uh, that you're trying to quantify does it represent. I mean, the the estimate that you get out of it is it is it accurate, right? Is, is the the number the, mm. the statistic that you get out is it is it you know, is it the the, the true number that we should be getting out of this analysis? So, but that's, of course, a kind of theoretical term. And and just to come back to your question, so what I mean, Bifalit, so yeah, so I I usually refer to bias, but in practice, of course, bias may sometimes be a a complex terminology because now actually if all this discussion about use of estimates indeed, and and depending Mm -hmm. on how you define, you know, your research question, uh, very, you know, subtle nuances may lead to very different estimates sometimes not always but sometimes it may lead to different estimates and so the question is how do you interpret these estimates so and in the past I guess we haven't always put that much you know attention to this kind of subtleties and maybe often it didn't really make a big difference but yeah when you talk about bias uh, it can make quite a difference right so the way if you misinterpret certain estimates so either you might call it okay my estimate is biased or you might just say that look you're just not interpreting your your statistics in the right way
0: Yeah, yeah. So in the way that biases always depends on the estimate, yeah. An estimate for one estimate would be unbiased and for another estimate, it would be biased. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in terms of biases, where, where is this bias all coming from? and this type of research where we combine clinical and observational data, what what are typical sources of bias?
1: Yeah, of course, for non-randomized studies, I think one of the most common sources of bias is, is, is confounding, right? Where you have other variables or characteristics that are also affecting the outcome, but also affecting the, the, yeah, the treatment allocation. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the most common biases that yeah, has been widely really studied and mentioned as a, as a key source of, of concern. So that but- is,
0: for example, the case if, let's say, you have two treatments, one works better in females than the other and then you have for that treatment you also have an over allocation of females yes of course that the overall treatment effect looks much bigger than if you would have the same allocation for gender allocation for the two treatments yeah
1: yeah so this is of course a common problem, right? In, in non-randomized settings where, of course, treatment allocation is not, is not random, right? I mean, treatment allocation is driven by, by many, many factors that. Expectations about whether the treatment will work, maybe also some convenience, you know, reasons on, on you know, that maybe could even relate to safety issues or other, you know, kind of mm. aspects. But yeah, I would be surprised. I don't know if if there are examples where somehow there are certain treatments that are kind of quasi randomized, yeah, allocated in, in clinical practice. Maybe for some interventions that I don't know that don't really have a strong effect. I don't know, like like a paracetamol. I don't know. It's just a random comment. I, I really don't have a clue.
0: Yeah. What are other sources of bias?
1: Yeah, so other sources. So yeah, the quality of the measurements uh, can also lead to bias. So I know in in randomized trials that they are heavily controlled, right? So there's a lot of effort making sure that you measure the right thing in the right way at the right time. So there is a lot of emphasis on on the quality of the measurements. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is much less the case in, in observational research, where sometimes... I mean, so data can be collected through through questionnaires, but also they can be collected, how do you you say that? It's it's like a part of clinical routine, right? So you would Mm -hmm. ask like a a doctor or or a physician to participate in your study and to just share your data. And you would trust them to, you know, collect the data in a meaningful way. But it's possible that, you know, they don't have much time to, uh, you know, help you with all the different questions. So they might take a measurement a bit, not at the exact moment where Mm -hmm. you would like it to be taken. Mm -hmm. Uh, or they might uh, sometimes, you know, they see a patient and they think, look, I don't need that information. I already know it's problematic. Something like, I don't know, like smoking history or something like that. You know, like, okay, look, this patient, I know he smokes. I'm not going to ask all these questions about uh, how much he smokes or, or when he smokes. Um, so the, the, some information may be less accurate. Or it may not even be collected. Like missing data is also much more common in, in observational studies. And then the timing of the measurements. So, of course, yeah, so typically the measurements are taken at a at contact moment, right? So when, when you see the patients, so their timing may not always be an issue. But sometimes, yeah the characteristics of the patients or the measurements may be not taken at, at the contact moment. But they may be, I don't know, retrieved from like, indeed, like a register or some other kind of source. Or maybe retrospectively through a questionnaire. And so these are also kind of examples where um, the information that you intend to collect, yeah, that there is a mismatch between the actual data that you get. But sometimes you know there is a mismatch and sometimes you don't have a clue.
0: It could be, for example, that in in a clinical trial, you're asked, you know, after 12 weeks of treatment, every patient comes in and the the time window beyond and before this 12-week visit it's very, very small. Yeah, so in a clinical trial, maybe just it's just a couple of days. Whereas in, a, in an observational study, it could be much wider. Yeah, so, so maybe you have patients that were coming in much earlier and other patients that were coming in much later. And so that by itself already drives much more kind of variability in the observational. How does that affect the is the treatment difference then if you have oh, more yeah, that's variability hard to say in one compared to the other.
1: That's really hard to say. I think I mean what's common. So I know with in the present of measurement error, so it's it's people or researchers often, you know, like they mentioned, like in a discussion, they have like a short sentence where it would say something like, Ah, we know that there is measurement error, and we expect that this will dilute uh, whatever estimates that we're Mm. Uh, trying to obtain. But I mean, in practice, I mean, so several studies have shown that it can go either way, you know, it can it can lead to dilution, mm-hmm. but it can also go the other way. So it, it's really hard to um yeah, to anticipate how the presence of, of measurement error, but also differential measurement error. So when the amount and, and magnitude and so forth of, of your error differs between groups and and maybe treatment arms. Uh, at least for my experience, really hard to say how this will affect your your uh, results but in in general it it might lead to bias but also to uh, you know problems with standard errors and precision and so
0: forth. Yeah I can understand if you have let's say within a clinical study yeah you have a measurement error for a certain covariate yeah the bigger the measurement error the smaller the effect of the covariate by design that's always the case yeah but the problem is if you have this differential thing, yeah, that for one treatment arm you have captured it very precisely, and for the other treatment arm you have more measurement error, then I think it's it's kind of a really difficult thing because then you don't really know in which direction it goes. Is it that, that case? Um, yeah. So I don't know the exact uh,
1: situations where. It just lead to dilution. I know there are certain situations indeed where you can prove that it, it, it only dilutes uh, the effect. Mm-hmm. But so we have, yeah, we've mostly looked at more sophisticated scenarios. So we actually, we recently did, did a study where we looked at an IP, so a meta-analysis uh, setting where we have data from multiple, like observational studies and, and yeah, mostly observational studies. But then for instance, the, the quality of those observational studies varies. So different observational studies have different, you know, uh, quality mm-hmm. of measurement and, and different variability measurement error but also a different amount of bias in the in measurements. And so, so these were already, I mean, it was already too complex to, to have like a single answer on, on how it, it affects estimates. But of course, we have to realize that, that for intervention studies, the main estimate that we are interested in, that is the treatment effect. And so where the bias would then be coming from is rather the, the confounder adjustment, right? When we have mm-hmm. a measurement error in, in confounding variables. But I can imagine, so if you have like differential measurement error in uh, certain confounder variables, you might observe effects that are not really there. Or the other way around, you might observe very strong effects that actually are, in, in reality, are much weaker. But because yeah. there is this kind of differential error going on, you know, it could distort a lot of uh, signals in the analysis that you're trying to undertake.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Completely see that. So was this real-world evidence event earlier this year, earlier in 2021, Talk a little bit about this and, and your learnings from it. So, you have to remind me which specific uh, event uh, this is. <laughs> you had this event in July where you, there was a panel discussion and so on.
1: Oh, right. Yes, yes, yes. So, indeed, so, so this is a panel discussion we, well, we set up as a kind of follow up of a, two papers that we wrote together uh, with the uh, ISPA special interest group on comparative effectiveness research.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So in this panel, we basically so we, we had a discussion about uh, the use of, of uh, non-randomized evidence for uh, health technology assessment and, and decision making. We we kind of touched upon you know the, the, what what is the current situation what kind of what are the possibilities of leveraging uh, reward evidence but also how can we leverage reward evidence in a way that you know that's not only analytically possible but also in a way that it would be accepted for health technology assessment bodies and maybe other uh, authorities that you know require evidence to make decisions on on a more you know global level so what exactly would you like to know about
0: what in terms of the HTA acceptance what's your perception with this real world you know this is this more sophisticated newer methodology of combining observational studies and and clinical trials
1: yeah so my impression so my impression is that i mean different stakeholders have an interest in you know making more use of of real world evidence and and uh, the big question is how how you can do that in in a way that is valid, but also in a way that it's you know that you can make uh, you know decisions that are consistent with each other. You know that that for the same type of evidence and the same type of quality of evidence, you make the same decisions. And and that's of course much harder for evidence that is partly based on on non-randomized data because there are much more differences in in not only in the quality of the data, but in in the way how you can analyze this data. So at this moment, as far as I know, there is not really any kind of uh, formal guidance on how to do this analysis. So we, we try to make a first step by by publishing a framework for an analytical framework for, you know, obtaining uh, real-world evidence and for deciding which kind of methods would be more appropriate for analyzing the evidence. So we try to make a, a first step in this direction. But I understand that yeah, a lot more yeah, effort is needed to kind of harmonize the efforts that are that would be needed to you know to present like a, an evidence package on, on mm. uh, certain interventions that are both comprised of randomized and, and non-randomized evidence or even that are not even based on, on uh, randomized evidence so y- yeah <laughs> my, my impression is that, that there are possibilities there is a demand but we've not reached the phase where where you know we have like a, a
0: standardized procedure for for dealing with yeah. these challenges yeah, yeah. My perception would be the first country that probably would be interested in would be England, which is nice. And I'm saying specifically England and not Great Britain because there's a couple of other stakeholders in, and the United Kingdom as well. Would you agree with that statement?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know how other countries are, are looking into this uh into this space, but I know, of course, yeah, NICE, I know they recently published, I think they recently published a document also, I think, where they highlighted the, the, the possibilities of reward evidence. And I think where they made a kind of a call for for methods. Although I don't know the details, I, I would have to look that up. But I yeah, I, I I see that indeed NICE would be um at least my impression is that they, they're interested, yeah, to look into these possibilities.
0: Mm. But I might be wrong, so <laughs> I'm not
1: a member of NICE. So of course, you, you yeah. might better. Yeah, run, run, run. it's
0: it's always great to check the latest technical support documents there and and guidances and and publications from those people that that work on the on the corresponding technical groups that consult NICE. So these are the common people from uh, yeah, the different universities, especially in, in the UK. Um, very good. So we talk quite a lot about different areas of uh, how we can combine uh, real world trials and clinical trials. And there's a lot of new advances in there, how we can combine them, how we can make best use of the avail- all the available evidence, not just only rely on clinical trials and how that can enrich it. I think it's a it's also a really hot topic in the regulatory space because um, enriching clinical trials with observational data, enriching clinical trials with um, you know other sources of data, to, both for efficacy and safety, is, is is a really hot topic. And so, I think it's currently a scenario where we both in the HDA area, but also in the real world evidence in the uh, regulatory area. We are um, working on this on similar things. So thanks so much for this really really great discussion. I think that helped a lot to understand kind of the where problems are coming from. Um, the observational data is not equal observational data. It really depends on what study you are looking into, and that there's yeah still quite a lot of things to do. But it's an uh, amazing field and a very very hot topic. Thomas, is there any anything that is key that you would like to have as a takeaway for for the for the listener?
1: Um, yeah, a key takeaway. I think so. At least, so I, my impression is that there is a lot of uh, opportunities in 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 the use of uh, real world data, but it yeah, it 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 comes also with certain challenges and and certain uh, you know dangers. Uh, so so caution is warranted in 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 this area. But regardless, I—I I mean, so I'm—I'm I'm optimistic about this, you know, taking this direction, and I'm—I'm I'm really, yeah, I'm—I'm I'm excited about this, you know, because it—it it opens up so many more doors, especially in—in—in um, in, in spaces where you know we need to consider uh, other types of evidence. My thought is, let's embrace, let's embrace these opportunities, and just be careful how we make use of these opportunities. So that I think that would be my my takeaway.
0: Yeah, completely agree with that. Thanks so much, Thomas. Have a good time. Thank you. Thank you. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain and her team who helps with the show in the background. And thank you for listening. Head over to theaffectivestatistician.com to find the show notes and learn more about this podcast to boost your career as a statistician in the health area. Reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.